0: Good evening, and welcome to the Boy You to Sleep podcast. Tonight's readings are going to come from Aviation in Canada, 1917 to 1918. Being a brief account of the work of the Royal Air Force Canada, the Aviation Department of the Imperial Munitions Board and the Canadian Aeroplanes Limited. If you enjoy tonight's readings, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, say hello, and in the meantime, sit back, lie back, or just in general, enjoy the readings, and hopefully it makes you feel a little bit sleepy. The first chapter, Aerial Conditions on the Western Front, 1916. The Battle of the Somme in the latter half of 1916 was the principal factor leading to the formation of the Royal Flying Corps, Canada. Aerial conditions on the Western Front were at this period of so tense a nature that they may well be noted before proceeding to the actual history of the Canadian Brigade. The following sketch makes no pretense of absolute accuracy. The data available at the moment are not official, but are compiled from the memories of several flying officers serving on the Western Front at the time. They may, however, be taken as fairly presenting not only development of the Royal Flying Corps, but also that of the opposing enemy aircraft at the period under consideration. The British Expedientary commenced operations in 1914 with a flying arm of four squadrons or some 50 machines of which no less than 30 were destroyed during a severe storm at Christmas time by the collapse of a large hangar in Saint-Omer leaving on the following day approximately 14 serviceable machines. At this time all aeroplanes in both forces were unarmed. It is difficult to say whether the British or German made the first aerial attack on an opposing machine but it is undoubted that this type of combat, coming how it may, found both sides unequipped with the exception of such offensive power as might be secured with rifle or revolver. British machines had thus been armed for months, probably in anticipation of forced landings behind the German lines, and without question, enemy aircraft were similarly provided. There ensued a series of sporting encounters, out of which it grew the necessity of arming aeroplanes with rapid fire guns mounted mostly on the top of the center section so that bullets might clear the propeller braid. The gun was operated by the pilot who supplied the sole method of forward shooting while the observer who was at that time placed in the front seat fired to the rear. A year and a half afterwards the method of which shooting practically through the propeller was evolved which gradually developing has long since reached mechanical perfection. In the early summer of 1916 the British strength had grown to some 28 or 30 squadrons in France these numbered approximately 450 machines Distributed fairly equally among the entire front. A view of our aerial equipment as contrasted with enemy aircraft in the Battle of the Somme gives the following data, but it must be understood that this was a period during which every effort was strained on either side and tight followed tight in rapid succession. In addition, the British had a squadron, or so, of serpithe, one and a half strutters, very fast, and handy two-seater tractors with observers in the rear. Also, some Bristol Scouts, Vickers, Pushers and Martinsnides, the German was in 1916 provided with a gun which did fire through the propeller. This was the Fokker. The advantage thus held by the enemy was also increased by the fact that their two seats carried pilots in front thus affording the observer a better opportunity of firing to the rear Our BEC-2, for instance, found itself under a handicap in this respect. The downfall of the Fokker rests with the DH-2, a pusher machine, which gave the forward-seated pilot a clear field of fire to the front. The DH-2, in turn, yielded supremacy to the German Albatross Scout a fast and efficient fighting machine. Thus went the battle, till in December 1916, the Newport, Spad and Soapworth Scouts were our kings of the air. In April of this year began a concentration of British aerial force on the Somme where artillery observation was for the next three months carried to the utmost in preparation for the great offensive staged to commence in July. At first it seemed as though our machines had the air to themselves, for up till the first week in June our registration proceeded with practically no counter-battery work So quiet was this front, that one pilot reports he cannot remember seeing more than two German aeroplanes for six weeks. In June came greater activity on the part of the enemy, but it is without question that we held superiority until September, if at considerable cost. From September however, to the middle the October, the Royal Flying Corps had its work cut out to cope with the increase in numbers and efficiency of German pilots and the introduction of two fast and improved fighting scouts, the Halderstadt and the Albatross D3 and D5. On the Somme front approximately 25 miles We had about 20 squadrons, equaling about 300 machines, these constituting the majority of our aerial force in France. Twelve were disposed for artillery work, the remainder for photography, reconnaissance and fighting. The battle proceeded with unprecedented intensity and with it a never-ending aerial warfare. Pilots were rushed from England with a few hours solo work and absolutely no gunnery experience to find themselves instantly in the thick of the combat. It is therefore not astonishing that the wastage of our fighting men ran up to 25% per month. The filling up of the Royal Flying Corps combatant strength was made additionally difficult, as the Corps could no longer draw from regimental officers now needed for the coming offensive, by which it was proposed to relieve the tremendous pressure on the French at Verdun. It is true that the strength of the force was, in anticipation, more than doubled during the three weeks which preceded the Somme, but this largely exhausted the available supplies of the fighting personnel. How reasonable, therefore, that the established success of the Canadian pilots and the fact that in Canada lay an almost untapped reservoir of future strength should turn eyes of the War Office to that dominion. Double operations were planned for the spring of 1917. The need was instant and imperative. Official preliminaries. Authority for the Royal Flying Corps, Canada, was given at the War Office in December of 1916 and shortly after, on December 21st, an important meeting took place at Adastral House, the headquarters of the Air Board. Representatives from various branches of the service were present and the situation in Canada was fully discussed with the following results. Formation of squadrons was to be pushed at once and personnel sent out as opportunity offered. Recruiting officers were authorized. Also one large aircraft park. Its location to be fixed later. As to equipment Curtis machines had already been ordered and delivery would commence almost at once from Buffalo. An establishment of 400 engines with a monthly wastage of 100 was considered reasonable. The use of other machines was discussed but left in abeyance for the meantime and the meeting closed. With the opinion that training could be carried on in Canada the year round except in February, the weather in that month being doubtful. It was decided at the outset that everything of a business nature, such as the erection of buildings, preparation of aerodromes, purchase of supplies, etc., was to be handled. By the Imperial Munitions Board through a Department of Aviation. This conclusion was largely influenced by the fact that in correspondence with the Ministry of Munitions, the Imperial Munitions Board had placed itself at the disposal of the War Office to aid in the formation of a Canadian training wing. Two engineer officers would be detailed to act as advisers on buildings and aerodromes. Such was the formal birth of the Royal Flying Corps Canada. It may be asked why it was purposed to recruit and train in Canada by the agency of an Imperial wing But it suffices to say that the work of this unit has been one of only countless instances of cooperation between the mother country and the Dominion, that furthermore all arrangements entered into carried not only the consent and approval of the Canadian government, but also the promise of every assistance and that the utter fullness of the discharge of this promise is known best to those who are personally conversant with the various phases of the history of this unit of the Royal Flying Corps. At the further meeting of the Air Board held at Agustral House, January 1st, 1917, The personnel of the advance party was selected. The administration section consisted of the officer commanding, at that time lieutenant colonel, two squadron commanders, a major and a captain, one flight commander, a captain, one flying officer, a lieutenant. The supply section consisted of one park commander one first equipment officer and two second class equipment officers these a major captain and two lieutenants two engineer officers both majors one of whom was one of the canadian engineers and the other from the royal engineers services followed a little later The recruiting section, composed of a captain and three lieutenants, completed the party. Mechanical transport of 21 vehicles was also sent. At this meeting, the general premises governing the future operations of the wing were outlined, such as the intention to give only lower training in Canada and liaison between the unit and the Imperial Munitions Board. It was further determined to organise 20 training squadrons. Owing to the conditions in England at the moment, the question of personnel for the formation of the Canadian Wing was difficult of solution and it was stated quite frankly that the Royal Flying Corps Canada would be obliged to do its utmost to train both officers, non commissioned officers, and airmen for the various duties to be performed. General and personnel equipment was arranged to be sent from England, but all machines and additional transport were to be obtained locally. The general purport of the meeting was in brief to provide the skeleton of a training unit, but the scanty personnel under the direction of the OC and trust to their united efforts to provide for that expanding output of partially trained pilots, for which at the time there was no insistent demand. Coincident with all this, matters in Canada had already begun to take shape. There was in Toronto a small aeroplane factory, which for the past year or two had been turning out machines used at a private flying school some nine miles from the city. Authority was received by the Imperial Munitions Board from the Air Board to acquire this organisation, which although its output was necessarily limited, afforded an opportunity for the future expansion, once suitable premises were secured. The machinery and equipment of this undertaking were forthwith moved into much larger buildings, leased from a local engineering works, and took shape as the Canadian Aeroplanes Limited, an organization owned by the Imperial government, whose product was intended primarily to meet the requirements of the new Canadian wing. Simultaneously, there was formed The aviation section of the Imperial Munitions Board, to which the section details reference is made elsewhere. Such in short were the arrangements which had been completed when on January 22nd the advance party of the Royal Flying Corps Canada arrived in Toronto. A word about local conditions will not be amiss. The country was, of course, deep in snow, and the winter period in its most trying phase. Recruiting, for which methods had still be formulated, was complicated by the fact that no military service act was in force in Canada, and the country had been apparently combed bare of those who desired to enlist voluntarily. It is true that the Royal Naval Air Service had for months been drawing excellent material from Canada. But this unit was offered the inducement of a commission on enlistment while the RFC held no commissions in its outstretched hands. But merely the promise of months of arduous work before qualifying for the distinction. That the Corps was authorised to recruit in Canada was due to an order in council passed by the Canadian government. Application was also made to the Department of Militia and Defence that the unit might be rationed, clothed and medically attended to by that department. An excerpt taken from an early report on Canadian conditions to the Airboard notes that the Royal Flying Corps Canada was an Imperial unit paid for by the Imperial Treasury and wholly independent of local military command. Also, the instructions in the first instance were very indefinite regarding a host of important details but that this fact was in the long run a blessing in disguise a credit of four million sterling had been established with the imperial munitions board for the purposes of the wing and it now remained To take place as quickly as possible. That no time was lost may be gathered from the fact that the large CEF camp at Borden, some 70 miles north of Toronto, was inspected on January 26th and on the following day a contract was left under supervision on the aviation department of the board for the construction of the first Canadian aerodrome on an outlying portion of this area. It was to comprise 15 flight sheds with all necessary buildings and equipment. Simultaneously, recruiting got underway. Ground was also provided by the Department of Militia and defence at Long Branch, some nine miles west of Toronto, where was formed the first flying unit of the Royal Flying Corps, Canada. During the last week of the month, a contract was let for the construction of a large factory for the Canadian Aeroplanes Limited Supplies of engines and machines were secured from the Curtis Manufacturing Company at Buffalo. And sites for the additional groups of squadrons were selected at Leaside, three miles north of Toronto. Armour Heights, four miles, still farther north, Rathburn and Mohawk, 130 miles east of Toronto. Such was the record for nine days' work, thus the 1st of February found the unit with all major features of its program settled, and on the threshold of a development which, as it progressed, was destined to realise every anticipation. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's readings. That is the end of the episode. But if you're still feeling like listening to more, please feel free to listen to one of the other episodes. And in the meantime, stay sleepy and good night.